more moments looking at this period of 1600 to 1800 AD. Now gentlemen, this is the beginning, this is the launching of the, the real advance of Christianity. Up to this time, we've had some false starts, we've had some tremendous setbacks. By and large, Christianity was on the decline in terms of the percent of the population of the world, it was falling further and further behind. It was fraught with divisions, dissension. There was the fear of uh, dissimulation, uh, the fear of being assimilated and absorbed by the, uh, the states that had embraced Christianity. The thing, in short, was a can of worms. And um, almost at the same time, the Roman Catholics decided that they were going to clean their house with uh, the Council of Trent and uh, what came to be known as the Counter-Reformation. As we talked about it last night, it didn't come into existence to counter the, revelation, uh, the Reformation, although that's what it was used for as the Reformation got underway. There were fresh movements of revival and renewal in Northern Europe that brought about the Protestant Reformation, and uh, things were on the go. As we assess, therefore, 1600 to 1800 A.D., I'd like to talk about the four major arms or branches of um, Christianity. And uh, just give you a brief view of where I perceive them to be at this period of time. As we, as we move out of this era, the Eastern Orthodox, they had no viable sodality. They had no viable vehicle for missions. Besides that, they were tied down by the Ottoman Turks who, as you remember, were Islamic and fanatic. And uh, so they were just barely trying to hold their own in these days. The Russian Orthodox Church saw the uh, Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, fragmented and divided with one pope living in France and another living in Italy and just a, a lot of problems on their hands. They saw the Eastern Orthodox Church besieged by the Ottoman Turks and therefore they called themselves the Third Rome. Heirs to the Roman Empire, still in the minds of the Europeans, the revitalization of the empire. But the Russian Orthodox Church, again, was modal. It was a modality without any sodalities to speak of. They had no viable missionary arm in the church. Therefore, um, their expansion was limited to their the expansion of the state as they began to move across the Ural Mountains and go on across into Siberia. And they did move in this area and as a matter of fact went as far as on into Alaska. And those of you who remember your U.S. history remember that years later we purchased Alaska from the Russians for somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 million. And uh, that was their movement. But that movement of the church was connected with the state. The... Um, state controlled the church in this period. So in terms of a missionary outreach, it was practically nil. The third major branch of uh, Christianity was the Roman Catholic Church. They had good viable sodalities in the fire movements, such as the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Jesuits, and these orders like this. But these orders were, as we've noted, tied to the modalities, so that when we had enterprising a creative men moving into these 
pagan lands and trying to adapt Christianity to the culture of the land, it was squelched. Simply because the modality more often than not insists not only on uniformity of doctrine but also uniformity of method. And because the methods of the Western Church did not fit the culture of the Eastern, it never really got off the ground. So the Roman Catholics had fresh life. On occasion, they had brilliant expressions of reach out, but by and large, really were hampered. The Protestants, the Protestants came into existence at this time, but they were tied down by survival. They were engaged in the Thirty Year War. They were trying to um, consolidate their gains. Probably the most devastating aspect of it was that they embraced the Augustinian concept in the church or in the city of God which said basically that the church had responsibility as far as the state was concerned. And so in Calvin's expression of it in uh, Geneva as well as Luther's in Germany and other forms like that it was tied to the state. It was tied to the state in uh, Scotland. It was tied to the state in uh, the Netherlands as well. And because of that I did not become missionary minded. The exception were a group of, uh, of Protestants called the Radicals, the Moravians, Count Zinzendorf, uh, the Anabaptists, which became the Baptists of today. And if you run across that and you're reading the Anabaptists, that simply means that they were against infant baptism. Infant baptism was practiced by the Eastern Church, by the Russian Church, by the Roman Catholic Church, and by the Protestants. And so this was a radical movement and said that it was not right to baptize infants. And so they were called the Anabaptists. And uh, we talked about the fact that they didn't fare so well back in those early days. Everybody was against them. And so it didn't matter where the Anabaptists went. If the Catholics got a hold of them, they killed them. If the Protestants got a hold of them, they killed them. So they were just uh, persona non grata wherever they went. But because they were not tied to the Augustinian concept, and because they were more subtle by virtue of the fact that they were on the run, they were the most exciting expression of mission in the church. And that's what we have as we come to the close of the 18th century. Now from the Reformation we learn some lessons that pertained to missionary outreach. One is, the Reformation used the language of the people. They used the vernacular rather than the Vulgate. The Vulgate was the was translation of the Greek and the Hebrew into the Latin years earlier by a man by the name of Jerome. And that was the only scriptures that they had. And you remember that when men tried to translate it into the language of the people, such as I mean, uh, Wycliffe and Tyndall, they were stopped. But one of the expressions of the Reformation was the translation of the Bible into the language of the people, into the vernacular. And of course that was one of the first tasks that Luther set himself to do. And he did that and revised it a number of times and it still is in wide use in Germany today, the translation that Luther had. The second lesson that we learned from the Reformation was that we taught the people that they could keep their own traditions in their own culture. Christianity would adapt to the culture of the land. And the only changes in culture that were demanded were those changes that ran across the biblical absolutes. Then the, the third lesson that we learned from the Reformation that made tremendous difference in the next set of years as we moved out was that they used their own people as their leaders. Up to this time, uh, the leadership came 
from the, the home office, from the, the center of power, and it was sent out as such. And in the fourth, it was they had their own way of explaining theology. So that the English had the Westminster Confession, the Dutch had the Heidelberg Catechism, the Lutherans had the Augsburg Confession, and all these were, were just simply expressions of theology from the cultural, traditional background of the people. And the inauguration of those four things, their own language, their own tradition, their own leaders, and their own way of expressing their theology, gave tremendous impetus to the movement of the gospel as it began to reach out now for the first time to pagan lands. So, as we analyze what took place in between 1600 and 1800, the advance was minimal. But, we had turned the corner. The stage was set now for the major expansion of Christianity. And as we move into the year 1800, we're going to see a, a movement of Christianity breaking out of this little cul-de-sac and reaching across the world in a way nobody would have ever dreamt. In a relatively short period of time, it virtually exploded across the face of the earth. It was almost as though in this period here, in this area of, of Europe, the thing was just sitting there building a head of steam. And like just pumping too much air into a tire until the thing finally burst. And the burst takes place now in this last period, of 1800 to the present. Well, yes. Uh, in the book, and I think you even mentioned this uh, the other day, during the early days of colonial times uh, here you know, in the mid-18th century, uh, it indicated that a very small percentage of the population were church members of whatever. Yes. Then use the word Christian. Uh, were the founders uh, of, were our founding fathers godly men? That's our perception of them. Were they just, did just so happen that they, had, that they were uh, in that minority? They, they, most of them, all of them believed in God. But they were deists. And not, not very many of them were really Christians as you and I would call it, Bill. You've got to understand that the theology and philosophy were, were tied together. And um, philosophy usually sets the stage. Then theology, and then from that it moves down into the arts, and then into music, and, and, and into the culture. For years and years and years, the philosophers universally agreed or believed in absolutes. They said that there was a supreme being. And that was just kind of a given. They didn't know God. The philosophy was a quest to try to find truth. For example, Plato talks about his concept of the good. The, it, there's a tacit agreement among everybody and all men everywhere that there is an absolute truth, there is a sovereign being someplace up there and that, that somehow we're trying to come to grips with that philosophically. Let me use an illustration. When I was with the navigators and my first assignment was with the Wycliffe Bible translators down in the jungles of Mexico. And we traveled 
into some of the tribes down there, which were the, the remnant of the Mayan civilization. And one of them was the Lacandone Indians. And when we moved into the Lacandone tribe, you would have thought we'd stepped into the Stone Age. I mean, they were as primitive as anything I'd ever seen in my life. And we went to their godhouse, and we couldn't go into their godhouse, but we sat around the, 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 the edge of it. It was an open place with a roof on it. And they had these god pots. And uh, they would make uh, whiskey out of their, their, beer, their, um, their corn, and then they would worship by getting drunk, and it was really a pagan religion. Well, the head of the tribe, when we called George, uh, was, uh, he sat inside the godhouse and talked to us outside, and we asked him questions about his religion. And we talked, one of the questions one of the guys asked, we did this through an interpreter, uh, asked him, you know, what happens, uh, you know, do your gods forgive sins? And he wanted to change the subject. And so I asked the question, I said, what happens if your, your god pot does not answer prayer? And he says, oh, that's simple. We break the god pot and make another one. And I thought about that a lot afterwards. And I thought, you know, that is a rather simple solution to a quite profound problem. <laughs> and, and I had studied philosophy when I was in school. That was my major. And as I walked away from that village thinking and mulling all this over in my mind, I thought to myself, that's exactly what philosophy was. It was the making and breaking of God pots. And so, uh, Plato made a God pot... And he called it the concept of the good. And August, I mean, um, uh, thank you, Aristotle comes along and destroys that and says that's not the right kind of a god pot. And he makes one in his place. And from then on, it's just simply destroying the guy's god pot before you and making a new one. And that was the story of philosophy. And that was the story of philosophy right on through the days that we're in right now. In the 19th century, there were a couple of philosophers, particularly a guy by the name of Hegel. And he came along and he said, Blow the whistle. Time out. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. The reason why we've had century after century of making and breaking of God pots is simply because there are no gods. Truth is relative. The reason why we haven't been able to find absolute truth is it doesn't exist. Brand new thought on the stage of philosophy. Now, see, that came after the founders of our country. So, to a man, the founders of our country and the people who followed them would have said, truth is absolute. There are certain inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. Now, in terms of having a conversion experience through the blood of Jesus Christ and so forth, very dubious regarding most of those men. Some, yes. Like I say, Tom, um, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. So the idea of making this dichotomy between the agnostic who says truth is relative or the existentialist this, this philosophy, the Hegelian philosophy gave birth to existentialism eventually that's all relatively new. That's in the last 150 years or so. Does that make sense? Okay, any other questions on that? I promise not to answer it as long-windedly as I did that one. Yeah, well, as a philosophy, which takes the, the thesis of Ecclesiastes, the Ecclesiastes says that the, that the thinking man will conclude that life has no purpose. And you've got one of two choices. You can head toward hedonism or you can head toward the Christ. And that was the thesis of, of um, 
of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And he simply says in Ecclesiastes, I tried the hedonistic route. And friend, I want you to know, it's not there. You know, a thousand wives and all the power and money that the world had. And I want you to know, you just can't find it there. So turn to God. That's the thesis of Ecclesiastes. But as you know, coming out of existentialism, they go to hedonism and live there. They don't, they don't try to come out. Hegel. H-E-G-E-L, I think. Yes. Well, your last point on the lesson from Reformation was uh, with regard to that they had their own way of explaining their theology. Correct. And you mentioned that that was based on the cultural difference. You bet. And it made me think back to what we talked about yesterday, uh, you know, using the car as a center in the hazy areas and the Christian liberty area. And what you're saying is that it wasn't based on that. As far as you know, it wasn't based on that. It was based on a cultural difference instead of on the hazy areas. They weren't pulling from hazy areas and making them the core. No, I would say that the two are related to each other. That it's my culture that tells me how far out I'm going to draw this circle. See, it's the, it's the background from which I come. That's going to, see, these circles represent... Well, I consider to be the core. And some people say, this is the core right here. And other people say, no, 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 this is the core. And other people say, no, this is the core. And the point I was making was, the further out you make that circle, the more divisive, the more insular, the more sectarian you become, the less acceptable you are to the non-Christian, and the fewer Christians you're going to have fellowship with. The less you're going to be able to evangelize your environment. Exactly. That's exactly where the tension is. Right. You got to understand that all the arguments to the contrary, notwithstanding, the major objective of any organization is control. They absolutely insist on it. There's nothing that makes a leader of an organization more nervous than to have things out of control. And that's true in business. That's true in government. That's true in the church. It is inbred in man. We want to do that individually, too. It's true in our family unit, isn't it? Well, yeah, or if we're sharing with a fellow businessman or a neighbor, we want to have control of them, too. And that's where we... Exactly. And nothing makes us more nervous than to be out of control. <laughs> uh, he says, I got used to it. <laughs> uh. Okay. Let's talk about, because we want to finish this up. Let's talk about the sixth expansion, 1800 to the present, the emergence of Protestant missions. What I want to do is go back to the before the year 1800 to the year 1732, which ushered in what we call the Great Awakening. 1732. There were three men who were instrumental, or really were used of God in this 
Great Awakening. The first is a man by the name of Wesley. He was an Anglican rector. He came to Christ at Aldersgate in England. He was a missionary, if you can believe it, to Georgia, the state of Georgia, to the Indians. And he got to Georgia and he said, I have come to convert the Indians, but alas, who shall convert me? And he got on the ship and headed back home and he met a Moravian missionary and uh, got talking to him and um, really got intrigued and came to Christ through a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate. England was in a state of moral decay. Wesley was a reformer. The church didn't hanker too kindly to him. So they closed their doors of their pulpits. They said he will not preach in our churches even though he was one of them. And so he went out to the open fields and he preached to the masses. And of course this is the time of the, of the industrial revolution and as the men would come from the sweatshops and from the uh, coal mines and, uh, and so forth as they would come out for the lunch hour and at, at the end of the day he would stand there and preach. And the Spirit of God was upon the man and it was evidently something to behold. Because uh, as you read of these years, they would talk about these coal miners uh, would stand out there after work and listen to the man preach and white troughs would begin to form down their black faces as the tears would flow. And men by the thousands were converted. And it ushered in, this great awakening ushered in England a social reformation. The abolition movement, headed by a man by the name of Shaftesbury, who was a member of Parliament and a fine evangelical Christian. Men like Dickens wrote against it in the sweatshops and the abuse of child labor and such things as Oliver, Twist, and uh, uh, the Christmas Carol and so forth. The church was filled with immorality and lax living. It wasn't uncommon to see the bishops of the Anglican church riding in their gilded carriages with their mistresses. The second great man was Whitfield. Whitfield spanned two continents. He was English, but he was a great force both in England and in America. He was a great friend of Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. Whitfield. George Whitfield. One of the great preachers. Interesting stories. Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield were good friends. As best we know, Franklin never came to Christ, but loved to hear Whitfield preach. And so uh, Franklin invited one of his friends, Lord Chesterton, to listen to Whitfield preach on the Boston Green. Now can you imagine a man standing before an audience of 30,000 people and preaching without a public address system? And he would stand before that audience and preach and, and Franklin told uh, his friend Lord Chesterton, he says, now when you go to hear this guy preach, I want to warn you, don't take any more money than you plan on giving away. <laughs> and he said, why? He said, well, because Whitfield's got these mission projects that he always makes an appeal for. And he says, it's irresistible. And Chesterton says, that there's no way in the world that a man's going to pull money out of my pocket. And he went, and the story has it, he lost everything. He just... <laughs> 
the, the ability of this man to capture his audiences. And, uh, and that same meeting, it's reported that he was talking about a man outside of Christ as being blind, living on the edge of the prefaces. And he had his cane and he was walking along like this. And, and just at that last moment, he lunged as though he was going to go over the edge of the platform. And so enthralled was this non-Christian Lord Chesterton that he screamed out to the audience. He says, my God, the man is gone. <laughs> so tremendously captured were these audiences by these great preachers of the gospel. Edwards was another man most famous for his sermon The Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. Edwards is a small, slight man with a first-class mind. He would read his manuscripts and with a little light and he would read with his bicycles on and he would preach, lecturing with a, with a candle in one hand and waving with the other, looking on his manuscripts. And he described how a man outside of Jesus Christ was like a spider hanging by the thread of his web over the fires of hell. Well, the, um, in, in this era, the, uh, where the, the Great Awakening began, we began to hear more and more about the personal relationship of Jesus Christ and men exhorting other men to come to that relationship. Was that prevalent through these earlier ages? It was prevalent in the, uh, in the monastic movements particularly. It was prevalent in, in they had great, uh, great spiritual men like, for example, Francis of Assisi or Bernard of Clairvaux or, or these men and their followers. And they talked about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You bet. This was not something new. But anyway, as a result of, uh, of Edward's preaching, people came knocking at his door on all hours of the night and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there in that part of New England came to Christ. As a result of the Great Awakening in the United States of America, it shaped the Declaration of Independence. The Great Awakening united the colonies because of their commonality in the Awakening. Thirdly, it produced democratic churches. Even the Episcopalian churches were democratic in the United States back in those days. And fourthly, it gave birth to new efforts to win the Indians. Yes. Number one, it helped shape the Declaration of Independence because it was God-centered. Second, it united the colonies because they had a commonality in what was taking place through the Spirit of God. Thirdly, it produced democratic churches. And fourthly, it gave birth to new efforts to win the Indians. And the Great Awakening prepared the United States for the American Revolution. But there was a counter to the Great Awakening and a tremendous amount of apostasy and turning back the other way. So I want to give you some statistics here. In the year 1800, 7% of the population went to church. So we're talking about the United States of America. In 1815, less than 10% went to church. In 1850, approximately 15.5% went to church. 1865 brought to the end the Civil War. And from then until the year 1900, 
millions of Catholics poured into the United States from Ireland and Southern Europe. And though they were not missionary minded, in the sense that they were evangelistic, they did grow through immigration and their birth rate. By the year 1900, therefore, 35.7% of the United States went to church. By the year 1900. 1865, uh, no figure, it was 1865 brought the end of the Civil War and the mass migrations. And we'll talk about the migrations in a moment. 1910, 43.5% of the population went to church. By 1945, two-thirds of the population, 66% went to church 1945 just what they would consider regular attendance to church 7% 1815 less than 10% 1935.7% 1910 43.5% 1945-66% With the revolution ending, the British became the major sea power in the world. And they looked around and they said, these young upstarts in America have gained their independence. There's no way in the world we should have lost that war. Let's go back and take them. The Americans expected a return from the British, and that happened in the year 1812. And we had the, uh, a war with Great Britain. And fortunately, we won. We won. And it dawned on Americans at that time that the country belonged to them. That they were actually a nation now, and nobody's going to take that from them. And that began, gentlemen, the great movement westward. And the United States of America became a sanctuary for Europe. And I was going to bring along with me the quote that's on the Statue of Liberty, but I didn't have time to look that thing up. But read what that looks like because it's a beautiful statement of the philosophy of America back in those days of bringing the oppressed from the other parts of the world to a land of opportunity and liberty. So, that in the year 1800 there were 5.3 million Americans. That's the population in the United States in 1800. Now catch the rapid expansion here. In 1920, 20 years later, it almost doubled to 9.6 million. 1820, thank you. In 1840, it almost doubled again, 20 years later, to 17 million. In 1860, it almost doubled again, 20 years later, to 31.4 million. In 1880, there were 50 million. 1900, there were 76 million. And in 1910, there was 92 million people. So in a little over a hundred years, it moved from 5 million to 92 million people. What percentage currently go to church? Do you have any <coughs> right around 60% is the, the current estimation. Well, that seems high. It is the highest in the world. Yeah, I think that more than half of the people in the United States, I, I would say, go to church. Now, I'm not saying they're Christians. 
In Europe, the French copied the Americans with the French Revolution, but they could not follow the American pattern. They had no ecclesiastical pattern to draw from. The church was autocratic. Thus, the revolution in, in, um, in France produced Napoleon. And Napoleon was an absolute unmitigated disaster. The revolution in Napoleon was an unmitigated disaster for the Roman Catholic mission program. It cut the roots of the missionary enterprise because most of the Roman Catholic missionaries at that time were from France. And the conquests of Napoleon, which were as far as Egypt and Italy and all the way on up through Europe and went on into Russia, you remember, which was his major defeat, drained Europe dry in both men and money. For example, Napoleon went into Russia with 600,000 of the flower of France, the youth of France. They came out with 16,000. And out of that 16,000, only 1,000 of them were ever able to fight again. Out of 600,000 men. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. Pattern. Well, in the United States, the Great Awakening ushered in a democratic form of government in the churches. So that the people learned how to rule themselves. And then from there, I went to the town, <coughs> town meetings. And they knew how to govern their own affairs. There was no pattern. There was no, there was no school or no education for them, so to speak, in France. And therefore, they weren't able to handle the, rev the, the revolution. William Carey. He's a man you want to remember. A shoe cobbler with a first-class mind. No, he was a Baptist. That's what you wanted me to say, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, for the sake of you who may not know, that was a Baptist asking that question. <laughs> and he was a New Zealander, besides. He just hadn't gotten there yet, that's all. He was from England. William Carey, C-A-R-E-Y. And he got a burden. He said, you know, we ought to be reaching the non-Christians, the heathen of the world. There's a world out there. He got to know it because Britain was a sea power, because of their colonial expansion. And he said, man, we've got to get out there and reach them. So he went to the clergy. And he said, you know, we ought to be out there in the mission field. To which the clergy answered him, young man, if God wanted to reach the heathen, he wouldn't need the likes of you and me. So Kerry gathered together a band of brothers in a meeting much like we've got right here. And he said, gentlemen, if you hold the rope, I'll climb into the pit. And they said, you got yourself a deal. And they organized 
the Baptist, underline that word, the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792. And Carey went to India. Now, note here that this is almost 300 years after the Reformation. And the Roman Catholics held Protestantism in derision simply because Protestantism never was missionary-minded. It was a great weakness in the Protestant movement. 300 years without an effort to evangelize the non-Christians. Again, simply because they had no vehicle. It was modal rather than sodal. Kerry began the sodalities in Protestantism. Or to put it another way, Kerry ushered in the Protestant orders. The Protestant friars, if you would. And they were a force to be reckoned with. First of all, they lay outside of the church. Secondly, they were lay-led. And it brought about an explosion of organizations. Now, you don't need to write these down. The Missionary Baptist Missionary Society, 1792. In 1795, the Lenin Missionary Society came into existence. Four years later, 1799, the Church Missionary Society. The same year, 1799, the Religious Tract Society came into existence. 1804, the British Informed Bible Society. In 1810, in the United States, we formed the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. In the Netherlands, in 1797, it was the Netherlands Missionary Society. In 1824, it was the Berlin Society. It caught on like fire. All of them were lay-led, all of them outside of the church, all of them missionary-minded, and they spread across the world preaching the gospel. Kerry, in his organization, proposed four things. He said, we're going to form a society whose objective is missions, period. Number two, we're going to recruit only wholehearted, committed Christians. Number three, we will eliminate any trace of denominationalism. We will not tie it to any particular denomination. And number four, the rules that we have in the society will be common to all. And that was the backbone of the Protestant missionary movement. But gentlemen, the pattern was always the same. When Can you those quick course again? Missions, second Yeah, they were going to be missionary-minded. They were going to recruit only wholehearted, committed Christians. There would be no trace of denominationalism. And the rules of the society would be common to all. What's that last one mean? That sounds like modality. No, so what it simply means was that there wouldn't be rules for one person that would be different than for the other. For example, in Roman Catholicism, the laity could be married, the clergy could not. And so forth. But you see, as you listen to those four things, that's, exactly, that's Campus Crusade. That's the Navigators. That's Wycliffe. Isn't it? That's Young Life. That's new tribe, that's team. That's CBMC, thank you, Bernie. That's CBMC. That's exactly right. But the pattern was always the same. The laity initiated them, brought them into existence, and the institutions opposed them. They went out and did it anyway, as the laity were normally apt to do. 
God blessed them. The church looked at it and said, we'll accept it. The church embraced it and took it over. Started to control it. It died and God raised up a new lay-led mission. And that's the pattern that went over and over and over again. The laity raised them up. The institutional church opposed it. God blessed it. The church accepted it. The church took it over and controlled it. It died and God raised up another one. In the United States of America, many churches were started by lay-led sodalities. You see, in America, the church membership was voluntary. In the state churches of Europe, it was not voluntary. You automatically were a member of the church by virtue of your birth. Because it was not tied to the state, the American churches were elite. The watchword was, the church is mission. For example, in 1847, the Presbyterian Church in America had as their statement, Presbyterian Church is a missionary society and every member is a missionary. Isn't that great? But, as it grew, as the church grew, it lost its elitism. And it began to institutionalize in order to form a control system. The denominational boards, as they began to reach out again and again, began to flounder. In the Presbyterian Church, the missionary society was begun by laity, taken over by the church. In the same Methodist, the same. In the Episcopalian, the same. The Anglican, the same. All of these, the societies were started by the laity and eventually taken over by the church. Church historians say that new denominations can only last about five generations before they begin to lose their missionary zeal. This is the reason why concerned laity with a burden on their hearts for the world raise up these sodalities. But most of the time the sodalities eventually become modalities. The most recent expression of that was the CMA. How long ago was it, Bob? They used to, they used to, a year ago, two years ago, this became a denomination, didn't they?
Christian Missionary Alliance. So what happened was that we have different bursts of missionary enterprises. The first was with Carey in 1792. The second burst of Protestant missions was in 1865. And because the others were taken over, there was a new cycle of voluntary missionary sodalities. Probably the most well-known was Hudson Taylor in 1865. And he went over to China. Now, remember we talked last time about the fact what time do I quit here? Okay. I'll try to finish this thing up here. Remember we talked about the fact that when the missionary movement chose to attach itself to the state or to attach itself to colonialism it gave tremendous impetus at the beginning but turned back to haunt them later on. And that's exactly what happened in Protestant missions in the Orient. The British became the great colonial power. So that in the 1900s, they boasted that the fact that the sun never set on the British Empire. But you see, the missionary societies then became heir to all the ills of colonialism. For example, Great Britain, in order to expand its empire, decided that they wanted to ship opium from India to China. Now, that would be like a foreign government saying to the United States, we want the right to ship unhindered opium to the United States and sell it on the open streets. You know, that wanted to go over like a garlic milkshake. <laughs> and so it was obvious that they didn't take that. And so they rebelled. And it brought about the Boxer Rebellion. And it was suppressed by the Europeans, particularly by the British. And the treaty that was signed, and if you are an interesting piece of reading, read the treaty that was signed at the end of the Boxer Rebellion. It gave, the treaties gave the right for the Western powers to trade openly in that country, to export or import, I should say, from India, opium and sell it on the open market, and it gave missionaries the right to preach the gospel freely wherever they wanted. All in the same document. No wonder in 1948 we were expelled as a missionary movement from China. You can't blame them. In the Boxer Rebellion, one-seventh of all the missionaries in China were killed simply because they were tied to the government. And we've learned from that, and I hope we don't ever forget it, you cannot tie Christianity to the state or to a foreign culture. We've got to decide what is the core and what isn't the core. What is essential and what is cultural. For example, we've got to ask ourselves, if we're going to work among the Islamic people, can a Muslim become a Christian and worship God in the mosque praying to the Lord five times a day. Can he do that? And if not, why not? See, these are the kind of questions that when they're first thrown at us we'd say, no way in the world. He's got to separate from them and he's got to become like us.
Hudson Taylor avoided this. The China Inland Mission was the organization he formed and he did not work as most missionaries did along the coast where the rebellion took place. He went inland. He refused to be associated with colonialism. He refused to accept the protection of the Western powers. He insisted that the people adapt themselves to the Chinese, adapt themselves in terms of their culture, in terms of their habits. He himself again wore a Chinese pigtail as he went around teaching and preaching the gospel and it was the most successful mission to China. Yes. I beg your pardon? Yes, he was a medical doctor. Physician. But weren't a lot of the early missionaries in China were being baptized? His mission centered around medicine. That's how he got his foot in the door. He had very few clergy out there. There was a lot of nurses, doctors, uh, what we would call paramedics today. They helped uh, you know tremendous suffering in China these days. They could have followed on that, but it started out as <coughs> out of this second burst in eighteen sixty five came such movements as Christian Endeavor, the YMCA, which was a strong evangelical movement in its day. Evangelists like Dwight L. Moody and following that the Bible school movement. John Mott, who became a great voice in the recruitment of, of uh, missionaries for the field and the student voluntary movement. And then also in 1810, the Edinburgh Conference. Now the Edinburgh Conference in 1910 was a unique phenomenon. And I want to talk about this because the evolution of that shows us exactly the problem we face. The Edinburgh Conference was composed of missionary societies who came together to discuss evangelizing the lost. It was a gathering of sodalities. Shortly after the Edinburgh Conference, the, second, the First World War broke out and it aborted or stopped all the efforts in that direction. So because we were embroiled in a European Civil War. After the war, in 1921, there was the formation of the International Missionary Council, the IMC. And the International Missionary Council came together. In 1921, there were no missionary agencies. There were only churches. There were the churches from the singing countries, Great Britain, Germany, the United States, etc. And there were churches from the national countries, that is, the missioned countries. In 1961, the IMC, the International Missionary Council, merged with the World Council of Churches and became that body now. That took place in New Delhi in 1961. Now, the interesting thing about this gentleman was that lay-led missionary sodalities began these missionary churches in these different countries. They went out for church planting, as Steve is going 
from team of sodality to uh, Italy. And they went out to plant churches. But they planted modalities, because that's what the church always is, is a modality. And the modality does not have the vehicle for missionary enterprise. And so therefore, what happened was that these national churches, they did not reach out in missions. And for years and years, the church in Korea, the church in China, the church in India, the church in whatever country you want to talk about, they did not reach out in missions. What they did is they became like the church in Europe before the sodalities came into existence, either in Roman Catholicism or in Protestantism. Not only that, when the council met, they were excluded. The sodalities were excluded. And it became a modal or modality-centered council. The national churches formed national councils, but they were not represented by the missionary sending agencies. Therefore, the foreign sodalities, which were the arm for evangelism, were very slow in coming. And it wasn't been until the last few years that they started to understand what had happened and they're really beginning to grow. So, for example, uh, today, and I'm not sure how old this statistic is, it's at least five or ten years old, but today uh, there are over 200 non-Western missionary agencies from third world countries and they have sent over 3,000 missionaries to other countries. That's what's making it exciting. In 1923, we had the third burst of Protestant missions. The Bible schools really began to flourish. This is when the Navigators, Wycliffe, Young Life, organizations like this began to come into existence. Again, because the old missionary agencies began to be taken over became encrusted with institutionalism, were led by the professionals rather than by the laity, and were tied to the modality. Walt? Yes. Just a comment on that. I don't know many of our present-day missionary societies in our country that have gone back into Vietnam, mainly because the communists don't want American missionaries because of our Western culture and a form of government now. We took along some Koreans into that battle with us. Those boys went back to Korea. They only got to go back to work here. And uh, uh, Dr. Moffat uh, was one of the great missionaries in Korea. Uh, I read a letter that he wrote last year that they had over 40 Korean missionaries back in Vietnam. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and they're burdened from Vietnam and that whole peninsula down in there. And they're praying that they'll have about 200 Koreans down there. But what we can't do because of, you know, we're the ugly American, uh, a little deprived country is, is doing it. And they're financed from Korea, not Western women. Yeah, isn't that exciting? Boy, that, that, I tell you, that just sends chills up down my spine when I hear stuff like that. Yes. Mexican Missionary Society that is sending missionaries to China. Uh, they have been very burdened about that and they're getting in. Isn't that great? 
Remember, we talked about the fact that, for example, when the door was closed to missionaries in China in 1948, we thought that was going to be the death blow to the church. The, the church, that fledgling little church, could never survive communism. And then when things began to open up and we discovered what happened, quite the contrary. A huge number, we don't know how many, but just millions and millions of Chinese converted to the gospel through the Chinese churches and the laity who got out there and did it between 1948 and 1982. In Africa, they very well become Christian by the year 2000, at least Africa south of the Sahara. Tremendous growth in Christianity in Africa. Asia is growing rapidly. In the last 15 years, the percent of the population of people that became Christians in, India, I mean in Japan doubled in the last 15 years. It's going very rapidly in Asia. In the last 60 years, the population doubled in Asia. The Church of Jesus Christ increased 18-fold in that same period of time. Not so with Europe and Australasia. Australasia, which would comprise Australia and New Zealand and Western Europe, less than 5% of the population attend church on Sunday morning. Less than 5% attend church. Which means that the number of people who are actually Christians have had a vital, viable relationship with Jesus Christ or even less. Church attendance in Western Europe and Australasia is less than it is in Eastern Europe and Russia. I think more and more. I think that's why Steve's going over there. I think that's right. In the United States of America, it may very well be that we're experiencing a revival. We're too close to it to know, but I wouldn't all be surprised if historians looking back on it, if the Lord tarries, and we don't, if we have that amount of time, they're going to look back and say that this is a day of awakening. And gentlemen, the awakening is not taking place in the institutional church. It is taking place through the likes of you. You are at the vanguard. You are at the cutting edge of that. And that's happening all over America. Interesting. In our society, there's a polarization taking place between the secular and the spiritual. It's an interesting phenomenon in note, man. But when the gospel is tied to the culture... You have more morality in the society, but you have fewer Christians. Yes. When the gospel is tied to the culture, you have more morality in the culture, but you have fewer Christians. Increasingly, our culture is becoming secular. But that is giving impetus to the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And men are coming to Christ in numbers today that we've never seen before. A couple of lessons that we can learn and then I'm going to close it off. We'll have some questions. If you want to have them, I'll just leave that to you. Observation number one. When man writes history, he writes it in terms of institutions. This man is great because he founded this institution. This man is great because he destroyed it. This man is great because he led it. Men are great to the degree that they relate to institutions. When God writes history, he writes it in terms of individuals. 
When you read the Bible, you find that the institution, when it exists, is always in the background. It is always the individual. The man, the woman of God, that is in the foreground. One of the remarkable things about our text, Kenneth Scott Lauderette's book on Christianity through the ages, is that he, more than most historians, lock in on the people movements rather than the institutions. But he is unique. God is in the people business. God calls us to be in the people business. And if missions teaches us anything, it teaches us that God's movement is through people and not institutions. When Christianity falls within the confines of the institution solely, it never moves. It has its greatest movement when the ordinary laymen understand that that is their job. It is not the job of the institution, it is the job of the individual. God is in the people business, and if we want to get involved with God, we don't get involved with God in the building of institutions, we get involved with God in the building of people. Now, don't misunderstand me, I am not anti-institutional. I belong to a couple of institutions, a number of them as a matter of fact, and I support them all. And they play a very important role. And we're not talking about the pros and cons of institutions, we're talking about the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the historical development of the Christian movement. And the historical development of the Christian movement does not take place through institutional forms. It takes through place through men and women who have been touched by the Spirit of God and get moving. So, get involved in the lives of people. That's where the action is. That's where God's at work. Secondly, I can find myself a sheet here. Let me show you. Now, whenever you find... Thank you very much. Whenever you find a man or a woman of God who's functioning for Christ, by that I mean, let's say that the goal of this individual's life is to know Christ and to make Him known. And we won't try to evaluate how far he is along that goal in his life. But that's his aim in life. He's to know Christ and to make him known. Whenever you find that individual and you look back on his life and you ask yourself what brought him into existence you always find out that he's the product of a multiplicity of influences. He's never the product of any single individual or organization. So you may have had a godly grandmother praying for him may have gone to a church youth camp, made a commitment, may have got involved in child evangelism in the neighbor's backyard, got involved in young life, went to a Bill Gothard seminar, sat under the preaching of a godly pastor, got involved in the Navigators or Campus Crusade, counseled in the Billy Graham Crusade, got involved in Christian Businessmen's Committee, etc., etc., and that influence that comes into that man's life, that matrix of ministries, if you would, that produces that man and woman of God, is as varied as a snowflake or a fingerprint. No two people are alike. I'd like to suggest to you that that is the church. 
That is the church. The institutional manifestation of that plays a very significant role in his life. But at no time can you draw a circle around an institution or an organization and say, we are it, and everything outside of it is para. That is not the work of God. Now, if you say that this is the church and this is not the church, then you have to say that without exception, God raises up his men and women of God outside of the church. Because all of us have been produced like this. Every one of you sitting here would have to say that there's been a multiplicity of influences that have come into your life that have produced you. Is that not true? Not only that, when you talk about the organizations, by and large, you, don't, you say, well, the navigators really impact my life. But it wasn't the navigators that impacted your life. It was your area representative that invested in your life. Isn't that right? So we talk about it in terms of organizations, but when you really scratch the surface and get underneath it, you find out that it wasn't the organization per se that impacted you. It was the individual that impacted you. That is God's way. Therefore, I hope that our study of church history or the history of the Christian movement has given you an appreciation for the whole body of Christ. It is a multifaceted thing that God is doing. For example, how many of you have heard of the Korean Bible Club movement? Anybody hear of the Korean Bible Club movement? I didn't until I read about it. 80% of the pastors in the Presbyterian Church in Korea were involved in the Bible Club movement of Korea. There are over 100,000 members of that movement and nobody talks about it or knows about it. That is the beauty of the work of the living God. It is the glory of God made visible to man. Third observation. We talked about it before. I want to highlight it again. That if you want to have an impact in the lives of people, and particularly if you want to have an impact in the lives of the non-Christian, you've got to be broad. To the degree that you center in on one institution or one tradition or one way of seeing things, the less you're going to have in the way of an impact in the lives of people. And I personally believe that one of the, the, the most exciting and dynamic things that take place in a group like this is the diversity of backgrounds from which we come. Because you come out of a Southern Baptist or a Roman Catholic or a Dutch Reformed or a Presbyterian or a Bible school or a church movement or whatever it is. And, and you... And what happens is you begin to see things narrowly. And you say, but boy, the, the important things and cover a lot of area. And then you find out as you meet guys like sitting here at this table that that just isn't so. That there are people who don't believe about baptism the way you believe about it and love Jesus as much as you love him. There are people who have whether what you consider cookie views regarding the Lord's table. And yet are doing more for the cause of Christ than you are. And you look at that and you say, hmm, man, that is impressive. And the more we understand the dynamic of what God is doing, the more usable we will be in the economy of God. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I am all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Fourth observation. 
From the year 400 to about 1500 AD, there was no appreciable gain in Christianity. It was basically a European religion stalemate. Prior to the year 400, the growth came from the non-institutional lay movements. After the year 1500, the major gains came from the sodalities, the lay movements. This is God's way. And gentlemen, I hope it comes through loud and clear to you that you are God's way of reaching the world. It has never been given to the task of the vocational Christian worker. It has never been given to the task of the institution. It has been given the task of the ordinary believer functioning in whatever tradition and whatever denomination or church background you happen to be from. It is your job. You have both the right and the responsibility to represent Jesus Christ in the context of your world. Any questions? Well, we're tied into institutions. It's a part of our heritage. It's a part of our what we have and probably always will have. What is going to be their most effective purpose then? They will lend stability. They'll help us in terms of fellowship, um, worship, meeting the needs of our family. And uh, the institution of the church plays a very strategic role in feeding the sheep. See, Jesus said to Peter, get those sheep fed. And they impressed on Peter so strongly that when he writes his first epistle, he says to the elders, he says, gentlemen, whatever you do, don't forget to feed the sheep. And there's just a whole bunch of people out there who will never be like you in the sense that you're really turned on for the cause of Christ and functioning. They're Christians, they're washed in the blood, they're on the way to heaven, they're beloved by the Savior, but they'll never be effective, functioning men and women for God in the marketplace. They need to be fed. I thank God that my pastor does a good job of that. I love him for it, I support him, and help him and participate in it in any way I can. couple observations that, uh, um, that I, uh, I kind of think are valid. In looking at uh, the things that have uh, uh, that, that Christianity has gone through and looking at the people that God really used, uh, some of the things that uh, Christ said about, uh, you know, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my sake, uh, it seems like the uh, uh, saints of God uh, uh, kind of needed that. Step outside of what's established, um, and uh, you know, he said, "If you want to be my disciple, then you need to uh, be willing to deny yourself and uh, pick up your cross." And, and uh, man, I can see the agony that these people had to go through in order to, uh, you know, try to work with the establishment and come back to. Uh, the church and say, you know, God's really blessing this. Let's get on the bandwagon and uh, have the body where he felt loved just turn him down and say, hey, you know, you're off base. And uh, uh, then just go out and and try to find somebody else that believes that way uh, or just do it yourself. And uh, so... uh, 
priesthood of a believer might be comfortable writing it here, you know, because I think if I get down to the core of what I think is essential, everybody's going to agree with me. Uh, but uh, it's, it's tough going out in the world. It takes a real, real man. Yeah, well, I think that's right. Yes, Bernie. At the risk of shaking probably the core of a lot of us, comment on the uh, charismatic movement of today. It's simply a cultural expression of of the body of Christ. It certainly is the most viable, effective um, movement in a lot of Latin America today. Just a whole bunch of what God is doing in Latin America today is done through the Pentecostal movement, whether it's Protestant or Catholic. The Catholic Church has got a strong Pentecostal movement in it. Across all denominations. Yeah. Should we attend the governor's prayer breakfast? That'd be great. If you're invited. (laughs) 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 Yes. I'd, I'd rather pass on that one. <laughs> Matter of fact, I'll turn it over to you, Bob. At that point, I think it's. A... Well, you didn't ask me that question, but <clears throat> I think it's just. Right along with what he is saying, it has tried to tie the church in with the organization and with the government and uh, tied in strongly with some political feel and has lost the sense of mission. We have a list of, I hope everybody's on here. If you paid, you're on here. If you didn't, you're not, so I'm not on here. but uh, these will be down on the counter at the office. If you'd like one, I hope the address are right. Uh, and if you're not on here, why, please forgive us. They're available, yes. Is Walt on there in case we'd like to send something? Yes, he is. And I don't know where my secretary got it, but this is called the Leadership Foundation Seminar. I guess she didn't want us to become identified with this in case some heresy was produced. Oh, that's what you are. Yes, his his name is on here. And if we misspelled your names, that's because the way you write, the way you signed your check. We've been able to call most banks um, before yesterday to check on your credit to make sure the checks didn't bounce <laughs> there's no such bank it was on your check <coughs> we will uh, break up uh, now and uh, have our coffee break and we got uh, a little over 30 minutes remember that uh, Skip and Bernie's seminars have been switched Bernie is up here evangelism and uh, Skip is 
down in the grub house room um, on relationships with your wife. I think you got the rest of the list pretty right. Bob, when are you thinking about having another of this we don't have any specific plans. Uh, this fall, uh, there's going to be one up in uh, Minneapolis, the second weekend or so of uh, 7, 8, and 9 in Minneapolis. Uh, Howie Hendricks will be there with us for that one. There'll be a one about a year from now out in San Diego. Um, and I'm sure there's some others. Uh, you, you're all going to one down near New Orleans, aren't you? Covington? No. Well, that's, that's a different kind of view. Oh, okay. One at Knoxville uh, next month. Yeah. And they're like rabbits. they springing up all over the place, and we're not, we're not trying to control them. get some notification of these? or. Well, because of the <laughs> we don't even have an office. We don't even have a secretary. Skip, how would you answer that? How do these fellows know if there's going to be another one? <laughs> Someone uh, or several of you guys cornered me last night and asked if sometime we could put one on in this area that would include wives. Would that be? We already voted on that. Oh, you did. Did you get the day? Not the next weekend. Perhaps having one just for the wives. Well, some wives like that and some of them don't. A lot of wives just don't care to go to a seminar without their husband. They like to get in on what their husband's in on. They they like to be able to go to bed at night with their husband uh, and be there <laughs> so forth. So uh, we, I think we would be more prone to sponsor a couple's deal than just a wives deal per se. Well if we you know, I have to get together with the guys in charge, I just live here at the ranch, but uh, I would say that uh, for those of us locally here it's possible that we could do it a year from now. We've had what, this is our third lay deal here. I don't know if this is a good time of the year for couples or not. For your wife, getting babysitters. and sure is. Is it? 
with weather, uh, we may not be this weekend, but with weather adversely affected, would, it, would the early fall be more likely to be, have less weather complications? Since we're inside all the time, uh, with this good weather, would have been a bad deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was good. Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of driving, like in his case, from Wichita Falls up here, getting across Texas is his biggest problem. Once you get into Colorado, everything's okay. <laughs> We have a Great Lakes area couples conference scheduled for October 14 to 16. Walt's going to be there for that. Anybody in the area that's more than welcome. Where is that? Be at Spokane uh, State Park in Upper Indiana. Beautiful setting. October. <coughs> what was the conference for? Great Lakes area conference. Couples conference. Okay, if. Uh, if we have another one uh, here, we'll, we'll talk to uh, Winston and Walt and so forth and see what the pros and cons are on including the wives. I mean, it's great for us. we got the facilities. As you probably know, we've got some cabins we haven't opened up because they've been closed all winter. So uh, we probably couldn't take quite so many. The total aggregate, yes, but <coughs> we'll, uh, we'll work on that, okay? And then try to bring in somebody uh, like, uh, I don't know what we get, Howie and Gene, but bring in a gal who knows how to communicate with the wives and lead that. That sound good, Walt? <coughs> Would you agree with that, Winston? What we just talked about? Okay, let's uh, take a coffee break and then we'll meet uh, in our workshops. Oddly enough, I just talked to a listener about this about an hour ago. I know
I'm not a member of that, but we went to that conference. Pam has been leading a Bible study that my wife has been going to. We shepherd to the church. And that's how my wife got on to Pam. And then when she had this program conference, we went down to the church. 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 And there's a dialogue. And it is high. I'll have some in your office, and if you want to talk to Thank you. Thank you. That's all we need. Hand the wall high. Oh, yeah. Sure. Wouldn't that be a great program? Uh, how many, how many, uh, how many, uh, Yeah, our problem is that we get, uh, we don't have to have it here, we can have it in our very places, facilities. All of us are